to look at Psalm 33. Many of us would probably think about the 4th of July and we would think, well, it's just a routine that we go through and we're thankful for those that have come before us. But I, I want to unveil, if I could, just for a moment and kind of remove the reptile's grip upon your understanding of what's going on in the world today so that you can see really through all of that to be able to understand what America is and what it is to be and what we really are. And uh, I chose this psalm for many reasons. Of course, we have uh, 22 verses in the psalm itself, but we ended up cutting that down a little bit so that we could get everything in this morning. But I appreciate you, your, your, your attention, and I appreciate you reading the verses with me. But let me just explain a little bit. This psalm is written by David, King David, and it was written after his kingdom increased. And it was increased because they fought and they got victory over the children of Oman, the Ammonites, if you would. They were enemies, and of course, the account of this psalm. And by the way, most of the psalms you can trace back to a portion in the Kings or uh, in Samuel or the Chronicles that you can actually find where this event happened and then the psalm, of course, that comes out of it. And so I want to read to you the account that took place and then the psalm that was written. We were able to read that. So uh, if I take you back to Second Samuel, you don't have to look at that, verse number 12. We're going to just look at 26 to 31. Let me read it to you. Just follow along, if you would, in your thoughts for a moment. And Joab fought against Rabbah uh, of the children of Ammon and took the royal city and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and have taken the city of waters. Now therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and call it after my name. And David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the king's crown from off his head. And the weight thereof was a talent of gold with precious stone. And it was set on David's head. And then he brought forth the spoil of the city and the grave, great abundance. And he brought forth the people that were therein and put them under saws uh, and under harrows of, of iron and under axes of iron and made them pass through the bricklin. And thus did he unto all the cities of the children of Ammon. So David and all the people returned unto Jerusalem. Because of this uh, accomplishment, accomplishment and this victory, there was a celebration, of course, that took place. And that's where this psalm came from. Uh, we look at verse number uh, 12, and we, we remember this, we could put it on our church sign, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his inheritance, and we would actually see the verse probably in a better light if we know the history of it, and why those words were written. And so, after the success, then there was this incredible land of liberty that they had, and Jerusalem was able to expand a little bit more. And let me just share with you that I still have a proper view of America. I still think it is the sweet land of liberty. And as the celebration of our Independence Day gets closer, I want to remind you that you still live in the sweet land of liberty. Uh, I think as we look at just a little bit of that thought that we would go back to a pastor in 1832. His name was Samuel Francis Smith, and he sat down on a quiet afternoon and wrote the words to the song that really was called, America, My Country, Tis of Thee. 
And so the America has been ruined. It might be in your songbook, As My Country Tis of Thee. But let me just read some of the words he wrote. My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside let freedom ring. My native country, thee, land of the noble free. That, that name I love, I love. I love thy rocks and rills, thy woods uh, and templed hills. My heart with rapture thrills like that above. Let music swell the breeze, and from all the trees, sweet freedom song. Let mortal tongues awake, and let all the breath, all that breathe, partake. And let the rocks of silence break, the sound prolong. Our fathers, God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy, night, thy, thy might, great God, our King. What incredible words by a man who knew the word of God. He knew where he lived and why his, he was living there and what his purpose was. And he was able to express in songs that we could actually sing what we believe. And this morning, uh, I thought it was interesting that we are singing and looking at the positive note of America. And remember that all of these men lived on this earth uh, that came before us. We're, we're, we're able to have a place that we cherish where other people from other nations could come and enjoy the freedoms that we have in this country to serve the living God. I think of another song called America the Beautiful. It was actually written in 1893. And the song America the Beautiful was based on a poem that was written by a professor, a poet, writer named Catherine, uh, Catherine Lee Bates during uh, a trip in 1893 to Colorado Springs, Colorado. And when she got to the top of Pikes Peak, the view was so beautiful that it inspired her to write, all the wonder of the America uh, of America seemed to display there uh, the, the, the sea-like expanse. And so the poem that Bates wrote um, first appeared in, in print in the Congregationalist. It was a weekly journal on July 4th, 1895. And then within a few months, it was put to music by Silas Pratt. Uh, Bates, of course, revised the song in 1904. And after receiving many requests to use the song in publications uh, and special services, an additional change was made in the warning of the third verse in 1913. Uh, to give us the version that we know today. And the song is considered by some to be the country's unofficial national anthem. I, I think the first verse is beautiful. Uh, many of us could probably sing it. We know uh, what it says. But here's the words. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies. I have been near Pikes Peak, and I, have, I was there skiing and while I was up there and I went higher than the average because I wanted to get higher, I took my skis off and I climbed to one of these peaks of the hills that we were skiing on and I heard a rumble and I looked and there was two Air Force jets that flew by me. It seemed like they were only 100 yards away. And I thought about this and I read this and I thought how beautiful America is. She went on to say, Oh, beautiful for spacious skies and for amber ways of grain, grain, for purple mountains, majesties above the fruited plain. America, 
America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Goes on to say one of the other verses, O beautiful for heroes proved. In liberating strife, who more than self their country loved and mercy more than life. America, America, may God thy gold refine till all success be nobleness and every gain divined. And I think it's important for us to look at this particular verse here in the, in the 33rd chapter, if you would, or the 33rd Psalm, to be able to look at verse number 12, where it says that there was a reason for us to be able to say that this country too is blessed. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. And let me just give you a little bit of a history, so follow along if I go rapidly through what happened to some of the people that were the signers of the Declaration of Independence in which we will celebrate on Tuesday. What happened to the 56 men who signed it? And I have in the past focused on one individual uh, but I, I think it's a good for us to, to just look over all of them. And for a second, here's a portrait of the men who pledged uh, for our lives and our fortunes and our sacred honor uh, for liberty uh, for years to come. And 56 men from, uh, from each of the original 13 colonies signed the Declaration of Independence on the 4th uh, of July, 1776. Nine of the signers were immigrants Two were brothers and two were cousins. One was an orphan. The average age of the signers was 45. Benjamin Franklin was the oldest one at the age of 70. The youngest was Thomas Lynch Jr. of South Carolina at the age of 27. 18 of the signers were merchants or businessmen. 14 were farmers. Four were doctors. 22 were lawyers, although William Hooper of of North Carolina was disbarred when he spoke out against the king. And nine of them were judges. Stephen Hopkins had been governor of Rhode Island. Forty-two signers had served in their colony legislatures. Uh, John Witherspoon of New Jersey was the only active clergyman. And indeed, he wore his clergy clothes to the sessions. And almost all were Protestants. Uh, Charles Carroll of Maryland was the lone Roman Catholic. Seven of the signers were educated at Harvard. And by the way, let me just say this, that the, the Catholics weren't allowed into the colonies in the beginning because we had fled that type of dictatorship and that type of control of the Catholic Church when we came to this country. We decided to build something that we can actually have where the Bible was explained the way it should be explained and not governed by men. Seven of the signers were educated at Harvard and four at Yale, four at William and Mary, and three at Princeton. William Witherspoon, of course, was the president of Princeton, and George Wythe was a professor at the William and Mary uh, College. His his students included um, the Declaration uh, scribe Thomas Jefferson. Seventeen signers fought in the American Revolution. Thomas Nelson was a, a colonel in the 2nd Virginia Regiment and then commanded the Virginia military forces at the Battle of Yorktown. William Whipple served at, at, with New Hampshire militia and was uh, the commanding officer in the divisive Saratoga campa- campaign. 
Uh, Oliver Wolcott led uh, the, the Connecticut regiments sent for the defense of the New York and commanded a brigade of militia that took part of the defeat of General Burgoyne. And I wanted to say this, too, and I didn't focus on him, was Caesar Rodney, who had cancer of the face, who many times wore uh, a handkerchief over his face that actually drove uh, his horse, rode his horse, through the night, through hour upon hour, just to be able to make it, to be able to sign the Declaration of Independence. John Hancock, of course, held the same rank in the Massachusetts militia. And these were all built by men who had an incredible proper view of who God is. And let me just say what they gave for just a moment. Bear with me. The British captured five signers during the war. Edward Rutledge, uh, Thomas Hayward, and Arthur Middleton were captured at that time at the Battle of Charleston in 1780. George Walton was wounded and captured at the Battle of Savannah. Richard Stockton of New Jersey never uh, recovered from his incarceration at the hands of the British Loyalists, and he died in their hands in 1781. Thomas McKean of Delaware wrote John Adams that he was hunted like a fox by the enemy, compelled to remove my family five times in a few months. And Abraham Clark of New Jersey had two of his sons captured by the British during the war. Eleven signers had their homes and properties destroyed. Francis Lewis, uh, uh, New York home, was completely destroyed, and then his wife was taken as a prisoner. John Hart's farm and mills were destroyed when the British invaded uh, New Jersey, and he died while feeling the capture, fleeing the capture. And Carter Braxton and Nelson, both of Virginia, lent large sums of money to their personal fortunes to support the war effort but were never repaid. Fifteen of the signers participated in their state's constitution conventions, and six, uh, Roger Sherman, Robert Morris, Benjamin Franklin, George Clymer, James Wilson, and George Reed, uh, signed, of course, the U.S. Constitution. And after the Revolutionary uh, War, 13 signers then went on to become Governors, 18 serviced and uh, served as the state legislatures. Uh, 16 became the state and federal judges. Uh, seven became members of the U.S. House of Representatives. And six became U.S. Senators. And James Wilson and Samuel Chase became Supreme Court Justices. Jefferson and Adams and El- Elbridge uh, Gary. Uh, each became vice presidents, of course, and Adam and Jefferson later became presidents. Five signers played major roles in the establishments of colleges and universities. Franklin, of course, the University of Pennsylvania, Jefferson, the University of Virginia, Benjamin Rush and Dickinson College, Lewis Morris and the New York University, and George Walton, the University of Georgia. And then there was Adams and Jefferson and Carroll were the longest serving uh, or surviving signers, I should say, and Adams and Jefferson both died on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Carroll was the last signer to die in 1832 at the age of 95, the same year that Samuel Francis Smith wrote, My Country, Tis of Thee. And so it's interesting when we think about all of that, and I said all of that to say this, 
that unless we have some Marines and some Navy personnel and some, maybe some, what I would actually call the SEALs, come to our rescue and get into the White House, this country is doomed. We have no hope. We have no hope outside of men that have fortitude and that have God on their side. Because without God on our side, we will not be able to continue on as a nation. We'll become like all the other nations. They will flood us and maybe even take us. And just take a look at how many billions of dollars were spent in the last couple of years. Two billion dollars to buy up the farm land in America. And the Chinese have done that. And how can that happen? How can that happen? Because we have allowed ourselves to not understand what it takes to be what God desires for us to be as a nation. My desire is not to scold you, but to help you understand that this nation is in great need of people that will love the Lord and people that will actually understand what our forefathers believed. And I want to give you four things. If you look at your Bibles, I want to bring them all out of, there, out of here, and we'll be done in no time. I won't be long on these four issues, but I think they're needed to be said. And that is that that uh, these four main views of the founding fathers had. Uh, we also see in the text of the scriptures, in one through three, I see that these particular people that actually began America had this view of God. It was a proper adoration toward the God of heaven. Look at the verses in verses one through three. It says, blessed is he whose transgression, I'm sorry, in verse number, verse number one of chapter 33, rejoice in the Lord, O rejoice Ye righteous, for praise is comely. That word means suitable, or it is beautiful for the upright. So we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in the proper things. I like it when people talk about America, but this bothers me. It bothers me when people get up and they talk about America and they're in their beds this morning asleep. They're not praising God. They're not worshiping the God of heaven. I don't think you can be a true American without worshiping the God of heaven. I really believe if you're not a person who believes there is a God in heaven who rules everything, that you're not a true American. You can go ahead and shoot me if you want to. But I really believe that a true American will believe that there is a God. His name is Jehovah, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take away the sin problem. And only by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, can we be saved. And our nation was built upon that. They had a proper view, I see, that it is the chief joy of the upright. Look at verse number 2. Praise the Lord with harp, sing unto him with psaltery, and with an instrument of ten strings, and sing unto him a new song, and play skillfully with a loud noise. And I really believe that the music this morning really was a proper uh, praise toward the God of heaven. We enjoyed it, but it was actually lifting us up toward him. And I think it's important for us to understand that it is the highest duty. It is the chief joy. It is the moral task of every believer to be able to sing. When I see people out there without a hymnal in their hand and not singing, listen, dear Christian, you have a lot to sing about. God has given us this wonderful land, and he's given us, and it challenges me and encourages my heart when I hear good music and people praising the God of heaven. 
The freedom to assemble and worship is one of our most precious rights and one of that we often take for granted, I think. And yet that this desire burned brightly in the hearts of every pilgrim and every determined patriot that was part of the cause in the beginning. And our nature was our nation was built upon the backs of these stalwart soldiers of this freedom. And unfortunately, we have for the most part lost the zeal for our country and for God. It is too often replaced with false worship and with money and with success and with personality. And I really believe it's time for us to have a holy movement of God and a breath of God to come upon our hearts that we would worship him in the proper way. I like what John Adams said. It is the duty for all men in society, publicly, and at state's seasons to worship the supreme being, the great creator, the preserver of the universe, and no subject shall be hurt, molested, or restrained in his person, liberty, or estate for worshiping God in a manner most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience or for his religious profession or sentiments provided he doth not disturb the public peace or obstruct others in their religious worship. Written in 1776, as he said, here's some thoughts from my government. I think it's interesting when we think about George Washington in 1789, and he wrote this. He said, the liberty enjoyed by the people of these states worshiping the almighty God agreeably to their conscience is not only among the choices of their blessings, but also of their rights. When you hear people say that the founding fathers weren't Christians and the founding fathers had, their, had intentions to, to be rich and so on, that's all a lie. The people that actually built this country knew who God was. And they desired for us to have a holy understanding of who God is and a, and a, and a passion and a desire to be able to worship him. John Hancock, who was the first to sign the Declaration of, the, of, the, uh, of, of Independence, of course, had been uh, president of the Provincial Congress of Massachusetts a year before when he issued a proclamation calling for a day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer, referring to that God who rules in the armies in heaven and without whose blessings and best human counsels are but foolish and all created power is vanity without God. And when you have people who are in charge of things and they're responsible for the decisions of the American people and they know not God nor desire to worship him, this place cannot stand. We'll be overtaken by the enemy. And can I say justly so? That God is God. And if we look at the enemies like the Ammonites, where the Jews went in and took them, and God was glorified because of it, and also as Americans we ought to be able to roll up our sleeves and say one more time, let's have the fortitude to stand up for God and to push back of this stupid nonsense that's been happening. They took the Bible out of the schools. They took out prayer years ago, and we kind of winked at it. Look at the mess we're in today. 
And the only hope is in Christ. And so we must understand that America needs to return to the proper view and adoration toward God. And if we do what God desires for us to do, then he will remember America. But if we remain to be engulfed in our own desires and have our own purposes and our own passions, we are going to be cursed like other nations. And then I see something else in verses 4 and 5. There is the proper view of the inspiration of the Scriptures. And this is very important. You have in front of you the Bible, and we have neglected it. But let me just read it to you. I think it was wonderful to be able to stand up and read the Scriptures. But look at verse 4 and 5 again, if you would. The Bible says in verse number 4, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in what? Truth. And he loves Righteousness and judgment in the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And remember the psalmist wrote in in Psalm 19, verse number 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. Uh, Psalm 33, verse number 4 says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. And the Lord, he loveth righteousness and judgment, and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Because the word of the Lord is right, that means that his counsel and his commandments to the governments of the nations are right, they are steadfast, they are certain, and the word of God, of course, uh, is done in truth, that it is, is effective in its execution. Um, someone wrote this concerning um, that particular phrase and that particular verse. They wrote this in the commentary, the word of the Lord is right. He is infinitely wise and can make no mistakes. And all his works are done in truth. And all the words and the laws and the promises and the threatenings of God are perfectly true and just. And the dispensations of his providence and mercy are equally so. And when he rewards or punishes, it is according to truth and to justice. And I think that we've got our minds being flooded with all kinds of satanic thoughts these days about America. And when we have to go back and remember on July 4th, 2023, and go back and remember what this country was established to do, And it was to praise the God of heaven and to worship him. John Jay said this, of course, concerning the Bible. He said, the Bible is the best of all books, for it is the word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Continue, therefore, to read it and to regulate your life by its principles. What great advice by somebody who lived before us, one of these great fathers that we look to. They said, the word of God was it. It was established in the heavens. It gave us the ability to be able to live the life that God wants us to live and strengthens us. And you know as good as I knew when the word of God is being read, you know that this is the word of God. Down deep in your heart, you know that this is truth. And the spirit of God is speaking to you saying, run to the truth and hold on to the truth. Buy the truth and sell it not and stay steadfast. And Noah Webster, one of my favorites, of course, because of the 1828 dictionary that he wrote, but this is what he said, the moral principles and precepts contained in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws. 
And all the miseries and evils which men suffer from the vices and from crime and ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts containing the Bible. What this Congress needs in America today is the Word of God back into the White House and somebody who has the fortitude to say, this Bible is true. And unless we come back to it, we're doomed. We can play the game and say that Trump's the answer. He's not the answer. The White House has never been the answer. The church house has been the answer. And the judgment of God will first come to the house of God. I don't know what your view of God is today. Maybe you have a religious view of him. I don't know. But this is what the founding fathers believed. There's two more. And I know I need to cut down. And I'll try to slow, I'll try to get done earlier than I can. The time is depleting. But let me just say this, that the third thing is that the proper view of the creation of the universe is in verses 6 through 12. And look at your text with me. They had a proper view of this. The founding fathers did. And I'll show that to you in a minute. But look what it says. It says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them that breathe of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he Layest up the depths in storehouses. Interesting, because verse number 8 says, All the earth fear the Lord. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let him honor, have a healthy fear of him. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it was done, stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the heathen to naught, and he makes the devices of the people of none effect. And the counsel of the Lord stands forever in the thoughts of his heart to all generations. And blessed is the nations who God is the Lord, whose God is the Lord, and the people who he hath chosen for his own inheritance. What a beautiful thought that the Bible's teaching us that he is everything. And this is Old Testament. But listen to the New Testament. The book of John begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Again, George Washington, he was called the father of our country, he said this, and he was a strong Bible-believing Christian, but he also believed in a literal creation, Among the other things, he he once made this comment, a reasoning being would lose his reason in attempting to account for the great phenomena of nature had he not a supreme being to refer to. And well has it been that if there had been no God, mankind would have been obligated to come up with one on his own. In other words, that God created all things. And if you don't believe that, what are you going to come up? What's going to be the philosophy? That we came from monkeys? You think you can actually believe that? We have in this country, and those in an institution that think in evolution. Listen, as foolish as I may seem to you, I really believe that God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh day. 
I still believe that, and the founding fathers did too. I like what Dr. Henry Morris wrote, and many of you looked to him. He said this, in fact, all the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the delegates of the Constitutional Convention, as well as the delegates of the various sessions of the Congregational Congress, at least so far as known, were men who believed in God and the special creation of the world and mankind. Nearly all were members of the Christian churches and believed the Bible as to be the inspired word of God. This had been true of their forebears as well, because in colonial times, he goes on to say, that the Bible was the primary tool uh, in educational process. In fact, according to Columbia University professor Dr. Lawrence A. Kremen, The Bible was the single most primary source for the intellectual history of colonial America. Uh, From their knowledge of the Bible, a highly literate, creative people emerged. Their wise system of education was later replaced by a man-centered system, which has caused a steady decline in the literacy and creativity. What that is telling me is this was written a while back, dear friend, and and what we have now. We have ignorant people on the news talking all kinds of nonsense. And I think to myself, a, a, a sixth grader that went through one week of vacation Bible school has more understanding of God than those that are actually speaking on the news. You know why? Because they're willingly ignorant. They don't want to accept our God. And since they don't want to accept our God, they're after you. They don't like you. It's just the way it is. No wonder the evolutionary, the evolutionary historian, uh, Gillian, I better move on. I've got to keep going. The Bible says very clearly, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, and all things that were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And so hallelujah, and shame on the public school system. Let me go to the next point. Proper view of the salvation of mankind. This is what these men have, verses 13 through 22. I'm not even going to read them. Verse number 10 talks about how all wisdom comes from God. The Bible talks about how he is all-seeing in verses 13 through verse number 15. The Bible actually speaks about how almighty he is in verses 16 through 18. And he is all-saving in verses 19 through 21, 22. And so the Bible gives us the understanding that he is all-saving. And I want to read verse number 19 to you. That this has all been said to deliver their soul from death to keep them alive in famine. And our soul waits for the Lord, and he is our help, and he is our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. And let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in him. So he is our only hope, and he is our only help. The Bible says very clearly in Acts chapter 4, verse number 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among whereby we must be saved. And can I tell you that the average church this morning that is actually gathering people together is not talking about Jesus. They're talking about how they can be more inclusive and more tender to be able to not offend. Can I tell you something that Jesus does offend people? It offended him so much that they said, crucify him. And those same people, people that spit in his face and beat him to a pulp 
The same attitude is alive today. And those that want to live righteous in this world will be persecuted also. And so we know that it is not an easy road, but we know this, that if those before us believed Psalm 33, that we ought to believe it too. And we ought to have the same kind of concept and understanding. So lastly, consider the testimony of John Jay. I'm all done. The first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. In an address to the American Bible Society, of which, of course, he was the president, he said the Bible will also inform them that our gracious creator has provided for us a redeemer in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that this redeemer has made an atonement for sins, the sins of the whole world, and he has opened up a way for redemption and salvation to all who come to him. Have you come to Jesus? Have you simply said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I open my heart to you. Come into my life and save me. Oh, listen, you can go to church and you can go ahead and be baptized by all kinds of religions and you can go ahead and do all kinds of things and you'll end up in hell. The only thing that will save you is humbling your heart before the God of heaven and accepting what Jesus did on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. I'm so thankful that somebody told me as a little boy, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I'm so glad. As a little boy, I knew that that was true. And I'm so thankful that a lady came at the age of seven and showed me that I could actually receive him into my heart and into my life. And all of these years, from the age of seven to now I'm 62, I can tell you I've never seen the righteous beg for bread. I've never seen anybody regret that they repented and came to him. If you haven't come to Christ, come to him today. Come to him the Bible way, because there's salvation in none other but humbling your heart, admitting you're a sinner, and receiving him as Lord. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. I don't know what's going on in your heart. Maybe there's some doubts and some concerns going on about your own life personally. My main goal was to glorify God this morning and tell you that America, the beautiful and the home of the sweetness of the brave and the true, that maybe in all of this you understand that there's some things that you need to take care of personally. And uh, God has already been working in your heart, and you'd say, Pastor, I need Jesus in my life. I don't need more religion, I need Jesus. And maybe you understand that. And you've never opened your heart and received him. And today you'd say, Pastor, would you please pray for me? I I won't point you out, ma'am. I won't point you out, sir. But I'll do this. I will pray that God will open your eyes to the truth of his word. And this morning, maybe you just simply say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to have. I'm not sure about all of that. But I need Jesus this morning. Would you pray for me? Is there anyone that would simply just say, pray for me? No one's looking around. Thank you for your honesty, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your honesty, ma'am. Anyone else would say, I need Jesus in my life. 
I, I got all kinds of other things involved. I got my money taken care of. I got my retirement. But I don't have Jesus. Anyone else this morning? All right, then, Christian, this message was for you. And you know what we do when God works in our heart? We respond. And so if you need to come this morning, if you're a man, I'll have a, I'll have a man take you and show you from the scriptures how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. If you're a woman and you're not sure, I'll have a lady show you from the scriptures. But if you just need to come to an old-fashioned altar and kneel down, that's what this time is for. Would you please stand with me? No one looking around. Let's have our head, heads bowed and our eyes closed. And if someone needs to step out, why don't you do that? I'm going to pray, and as soon as I'm done, the invitation will begin. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide in Jesus' name. Amen.